This morning, we're going to do something a little different, but it's going to be fun. Trust me. Um, I wanted to share with you, I was uh, gone last Sunday. I had the privilege to um, go with Michelle and another couple to Europe. And um, I, uh, my wife always wanted to go to Paris, and I didn't, still don't. <laughs> Just how it is. But I love my wife, so I agreed. And, uh, but it was a very short time in Paris. So we landed in Paris, and um, immediately upon landing at Charles de Gaulle Airport, we took a train to Belgium. And we went to a city called Bruges, which is what they call the, the Venice of the North. Uh, it's a city of canals, and it's quaint and lovely. It's beautiful. Um, and we went there, Bruges or Brugge. I don't know how you want to pronounce it. I've heard all kinds of things, and I'll butcher it either way. Uh, and so we were in Belgium at that city for two days, and then took a train over to, oh no, we drove actually to Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Spent two days there, and then got on the train and went back to Paris. Uh, got there just as the sun had set, and uh, drove around real quick to look at a couple of the sites, the Arc de Triomphe and the Eiffel Tower and uh, a couple other things, and then went to the uh, hotel at the airport and caught a flight out and came home. So it was a quick trip, um, but it was it, <laughs> really quick. Not even enough to get jet lag, so... Good, good thing. But I wanted to share with you some observations. And actually, if you were at the Christmas tea, um, I'm going to be ripping off my wife completely because she shared a little bit at the Christmas tea. But it was interesting how it impacted the two of us exactly the same way. Um, In Belgium and also in Amsterdam, these are two locations. and, And I went to a Mennonite Brethren seminary. Mennonite Brethren are what they call Anabaptists. Anabaptists are believers' baptisms, believing in another baptism, not infant baptism. And uh, a lot of the churches in America have their roots tied to the Anabaptist movement with a man by the name of Menno Simons, who was a Catholic priest during the Reformation and, um, and, and really laid the foundation for Protestantism as we know it today. He actually started in Freeland, uh, Friesland, which is in the Belgian uh, Netherland region. Um, it's, it's changed uh, countries over the period of time, the, the real estate there, it's gone back and forth, but it's, it's basically Dutch. And um, in that region, uh, this is where actually the, the pilgrims uh, first started. Uh, they, they, they found religious um, protection there um, when the nation was divided between Catholicism and Protestantism, and you had Calvin, and these, these folks found sanctuary in this region of Belgium and uh, the Netherlands. And then they ended up going over finding a ship, then going to England, and then from England coming to America, and uh, the colonies began. Uh, the, the, the Great Awakening that started basically the American Revolution uh, was a result of these Protestant Christians coming from this region, and uh, the very first pastor to, to start the Great Awakening, which was a, a massive revival in America in the early 1700s, uh, was Dutch. He was from the Netherlands. It was a hotbed of Christianity. And uh, this place was on fire for the Lord. It was amazing. Well, I was excited about going to this region and to see where our roots came from and, uh, and arrive there. Um, and uh, Belgium uh, was lovely, but uh, didn't really see a presence of the Lord. And we were there during a time where they celebrate uh, St. Nicholas Day. Um, and, and they give gifts to the children. They do Christmas a little different, but they did it in this, this last week. And it's two days where they, they give gifts to the kids, they open them up, and it's kind of their celebration of Christmas. But really no orna- ornaments, no decorations, no re- representation of Christ anywhere to be found. Uh, monasteries there are really renowned, not so much for the gospel, but for their beer. Um, and I, I, 
I would venture to tell you that the beer was good, but I would have no idea about that. So, um, so we, we, we marveled at the beauty of, of, uh, of Bruges. And then uh, when we went to Amsterdam, um, we stayed at a hotel right on one of the canals. And the canals go in and out throughout the city. And uh, we, we didn't see a lot of, of Christian representation in the city in this season where they're coming up to what is for them Christmas. Uh, no decorations, uh, nothing relating to Christ. So we signed up for a Festival of Lights cruise uh, on one of the barges going through the canals and doing the Festival of Lights, which to me was this is going to be a representation of Christ. And we were, we were thrilled about it. And we, we got on the barge at 7 o'clock that evening. Of course, it's in the north, so it's dark right away. And the Festival of Lights, as we were excited to experience, was not what we would consider Festival of Lights. It was a, a celebration of, of gay rights, and each of the lights were all in the rainbow color of the... See, and, and, uh, and every stop where you would see one of these artists doing lights on the canal, they would stop and give an interpretation of the artwork and why the lights were such, and every single one of them talked about uh, gay rights in the Netherlands. Um, started to realize as we walked through the city of Amsterdam, uh, an interesting smell emanated from each block, and that smell was marijuana. Um, it, it, you can purchase it there freely, smoke it freely, uh, as long as you're in one of these quote-unquote coffee shops, um, and uh, they sell it right there. Um, and, and then they have a place called the Red Light District, which is the center of the city, the oldest part of the city, Amsterdam, the Amstel River, where they dammed the river. That's where they get the term Amsterdam. And uh, there you have one of the palaces, and next to it is the National Cathedral. And then uh, a short distance from there is the inner city of Amsterdam, which is the oldest buildings where the churches are, ex- are in existence and, and lovely structures. Uh, we didn't venture into that area uh, because in the red light district, which is the inner city of Amsterdam, uh, there's over 80 storefront windows uh, where prostitutes, completely nude, uh, try to ply their trade to anyone passing by one of these windows because prostitution is legal in the city. Um, so on the barge ride, we happened to get into the red light district and uh, we were very cautious and careful. Um, you know, uh, work with me here. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> so we come up to one of the areas and, and I can see the red lights on one of the windows, um, but it was blocked. Uh, on, from the barge view, it was blocked by another barge that had St. Nicholas giving gifts to the children, and all the children and their families were blocking the view of the red light windows in the red light district. And it was, it was uh, a, an interesting scene. Children receiving gifts from St. Nicholas, representing a, a, a Christian saint that has a historical reference that is phenomenal, if we go through that and we can, and right behind it is the decadence of, of Western culture and an implosion of a postmodern nation that has abandoned its Christian roots. And it was tragic. And, and, the, and, and as we continued through, we, the final day, we walked into Dam Square, which is where the palace and the National Cathedral are, wanting to see the National Cathedral stunned by it uh, and, and its structure and its architecture. And there a massive from the top of the cathedral all the way down on the exterior of the building was a massive poster celebrating the 90th birthday of Marilyn Monroe. When you walked into the cathedral, they no longer do sermons in the cathedral. It was all a presentation, uh, like a convention center, of Marilyn Monroe. 
um, and graphic in many regards. Um, and my heart sank. Uh, conversations with one of the waiters, conversation with the, 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 uh, the master of the barge, finding out that atheism is rampant. Uh, with the waiter, um, I, his name was Daniel. I said, Daniel, do you know what your name means? He says, no. I said, it means God is my judge. He says, I'm an atheist. And I said, um, well, you know, does that mean you don't believe in God? I don't believe God exists. I said, you know, I don't believe gravity exists. And I dropped my keys. I said, it, it doesn't matter whether you believe in him or you don't believe in him. He, be- he believes in you, Daniel. He believes in you. And he said, thank you for that. And we had a conversation. And in the conversation, he talked about how his parents were social workers in Africa and how the, the, the folks in, in Africa and Ghana uh, would witness to him and they were fervent about their faith. And he just said, it's, it, there's, it's so cut and dry and so black and white and they're so you know, committed to this. And, and he said, you know, I, I just think we all need to get along and there, there needs to be tolerance, which is a, a word that I heard so many times in the Netherlands, tolerance. And, I, and as he was going through this, I said, Daniel, you know what you sound like when you're talking? He says, what's that? I said, you sound Dutch. And he started laughing. I said, everything about that is tolerance. But I said, a lie can never be tolerant of the truth and a truth truth can never be tolerant of a lie. I said, Daniel, what's two plus two? And he said, four. I said, what if, what if I believed that it was three? Would you tolerate that? Could we teach that in school? Our buildings would collapse because our mathematics would be terrible. I said, there are absolutes, Daniel. There are absolutes. And there's a God who governs in the affairs of men. And whether you don't believe him or believe that he exists, he does. I said, Daniel, you've never seen the, the designer or the builder of this building, but you know he exists because there's order. And I said, the universe has order. And I shared this with him, and, and I don't know if I moved him, but my heart was heavy in relation to that. And I thought, here's a nation that was responsible for the hotbed of Christianity that started the American Revolution, or I should say the Great Awakening that started the American Revolution. And, and from that, that Great Awakening, with Whitfield and, and Edwards and a number of others that, that preached the gospel with fervency, over 250,000 converts uh, in, in America in a nation that barely had a million people in it at the time. And, and, and all of our founders were educated through the New England primer with these, these, these pastors that had brought uh, the gospel in a fervency from, from a pietistic structured world that, that, that didn't worship God with a fervency. They brought it to America with open air preaching. Whitfield would preach to 30,000 people at a go. So moving that Benjamin Franklin himself paid for one of these open air revivals and actually attended and said it was remarkable how he, that Whitfield could speak to an audience of 30,000 and his voice could carry the entire distance. He, he, he coined it as miraculous. And this laid the foundation for the mindset of the cry of every human heart of liberty. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free, Galatians writes. Paul wrote in Galatians that the cry of every human heart is freedom. And, and the application of the gospel coming over to the colonies and bringing this revival in a nation that had never, uh, that on the, in the history of the world, a nation had never experienced such freedom. Land of the free, home of the brave, America. And now we, we come to a nation back to the Netherlands. And, and one of the other conversations with, was with a barge driver where he talked about our education is free, our health care is free, 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 free. And I said, that's great. I said, what's your tax rate? And he, he giggled. He goes, that's always the question that precedes that. He says, and I'm re-, basically, he's required by 
the Amsterdam City Council to present uh, the, the, the gay rights movement. He's there to present uh, all the aspects of socialism, and, and, and he's required. He can't have an electric or gas motor. He has to have an electric motor. The whole city's filled with bicycles. It, it's chaotic. And, and he, he giggled, and, I, and he said, I, I, the tax rate's so high, I can't afford to live in the city. And I said, so it's not free. Somebody's paying for it. Your tax rate is 60% plus you pay, you know, your sales tax and a number of other things. He said, yes. And, and, and I said, what if someone takes, the, the idea is, what if someone takes all of your income? You're, you're known as a slave. The less you keep, the less freedom you have. The less freedom you have, the less choices you have. And, and this is where they, they are. The idea that government is the option. And the, the concept of tolerance. Tolerance can only come when you compromise absolutes. You see, only truth can yield to a lie in order for tolerance to be accepted. And my comment to him was, you have had an influx of of over 800,000 Muslim immigrants to your nation that now get free education, free health care, free everything, and they've never put a dime into your system. He said, yes, it's burdening us. We may not be able to survive this. He said, there's more mosques in Amsterdam than there are churches that are active. And, and I thought about that. I thought, is this the direction that we're to go? Who contends for the gospel in the hope that sets men free? And, and the, the passage that the Lord gave my wife and gave, my, gave me as well, interestingly enough, was the one that she preached and, 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 and is so fitting at Christmas time. It's in the book of Matthew. I'm not going to have you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'll just read it to you this morning because it can be a little different the way we're going to approach it. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, it says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, translated God with us, tabernacled, tented, took a dwelling place with us. He put on human flesh and dwelt with man. And as I considered that, you go through the Christmas story, which we'll cover in Luke, and I'll do this at Christmas Eve, that in the book of Samuel, David is fleeing Absalom, his son. Absalom is taking the kingdom in rebellion. And as he's fleeing as an old man, he crosses the the brook, and, and as he gets to the other side, exhausted and tired in his older age, being pursued by his son who seeks to kill him, a man by the name of Barzillai, who's even actually older than David, gives him shelter and feeds him and his people. David, when the rebellion is stopped and Absalom is dead, David wants to do, a, do something special for Barzillai and says, come with me to the palace and let me care for you. He says, I'm too old. There's nothing your palace has to offer me. My taste buds are gone. My eyesight's gone. There's nothing that appeals to me. I just want to stay here in my home. He says, but take care of, of Chimham, my son, or it could be translated grandson. And so what we find in Jeremiah 41 is that David gave uh, Kimham his ancestral home in Bethlehem. It was called the Kim of, or the Inn of Kimham, which was the Inn of Bethlehem, David's ancestral home. So when Jesus is in, in Mary's womb, Mary and Joseph come to the Inn in Bethlehem, and a city that size only had one inn. By right, it was, da- it was, it was not only David's, but it was Jesus' ancestral home. He had every right to be in that home by ancestral decree, not just on his father's side, but on his mother's side. And there was no room for him in the home that was rightfully his. And he was born in a barn, a manger. 
And as I walk through the streets of Amsterdam, a nation founded on the principles of Christ, all of their wealth and all of their notoriety and all of their strength was a result of God. This nation, the abundance that we have, a result of God. And yet God has been removed and there's no room for him in the end, no room for him in that which he rightfully has authority to inhabit. And so it brings us to a place where we look at Matthew and we thank God with us. How do we get God back into where he rightfully belongs? In our world, there are seven mountains of influence that have been described by a man by the last name of Walnow. He describes these seven mountains of influence as, number one, arts and entertainment. Secondly, business, then education, family, government, media, and religion. And the role of Christianity, as we've been going through the Beatitudes and seeing the Sermon on the Mount, we see that as Christians, we are to be the salt and the light of the world. We're to have an influence both to penetrate and illuminate into the world in these mountains of influence. How do we change a culture that has removed Christ from every vestige so that Marilyn Monroe now takes the place of what Christ is supposed to occupy? What do we do and how do we do it? And the fascinating thing about the Beatitudes as we go through them is they're they're lovely. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. But then it comes down to a very profound statement that says, blessed, oh, how happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why would we face persecution? Because we stand upon the structure for which Christ has described our life to be. We are men and women of truth. And truth doesn't tolerate a lie. And when you stand in a culture in opposition to a lie, you will face persecution. I've been in this pulpit for over 20 years. I've read this passage countless times, and I can say for the time in the pulpit, it is never related to me. I've never experienced this persecution for righteousness sake. I've never experienced anyone reviling or persecuting me or saying evil falsely for for the Lord's sake. I've never experienced any of these things from the pulpit. It's fascinating to me that only in the last two years when I stepped into the political arena, into a mountain of influence, that I began to face this persecution. Why is that? Because of the seven mountains of influence, we may hold on to one, religion. But our religion is impotent. We have a series of churches around the world that love the first part of the Beatitudes but don't seek to engage in the culture to transform it. Only when you step into the culture will you be reviled and challenged. Only when you confront evil, only when you confront a lie will you be challenged. Only then will you face these things that Christ speaks of. And as we saw that we are the salt of the earth, and as the scripture says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And as we covered that in our previous studies, that salt is salary, it's a currency, it's a commodity. And that currency and that commodity in the world comes in different forms in each of these seven mountains of influence. As I shared with you, being uniquely a pastor and a politician, I can say as a pastor from this passage that the currency in politics is winning elections. 
And if you don't win elections, you have no validity, you have no commodity, you have no currency in the political world. And thus the church is trampled because they don't understand the culture or that area of influence. And to avoid conflict, we stay out of it. And in staying out of it, we stay with the first portion of the Beatitudes, but we don't go to the part where it says persecuted for righteousness sake when they revile and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. That only happens when you engage and you have that currency. And I've shared with you to the point where sometimes you think, why does he have to keep sharing? And so I thought, I'm going to give you another perspective. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you because my life's been blessed. My life's been blessed. I count myself a very, very blessed man to have dear friendships in my life. And this man sought me out, wanted to have coffee with me or lunch. I didn't know who he was. His emails were interesting. I had confused him with someone else that I had met earlier, thinking he was a very older man that I had met once in my travels with the American Renewal Project, who was involved with the um, Founders Bible, dealing with all of the founders of our nation. And, and, and he, he told me that he was the editor of the Founders Bible, and I thought that this was the elderly man I had met on the, on the American Renewal Project. And when I met that person, I really didn't want to meet them again. <laughs> but the emails kept coming and the persistence, and I thought, the Lord orders our steps. God, there's something here. And, and I said, let's meet. My father had died, and I had to change the appointment time and um, a series of other events where his schedule was busy. And we finally sat. And when we sat, I had done a little research just to get to know the person I'd be sitting with at lunch and, and was fascinated to realize it wasn't the person I thought. And what I began to read touched me deeply because this man, unbeknownst, he, he didn't know, had deeply influenced my life by a book called The Shack. Over 10 million copies sold. I was one of those pastors that would refuse to read The Shack because I felt it was theologically incorrect and had already judged it before I'd ever opened the book. But considering that 10 million people had read it and Ricky Ryan, a pastor at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara at the time said, you need to read this. I reluctantly opened the pages and began to read it and couldn't put it down. I was so touched. You see, we know the deity of Christ, but we don't know the humanity of Christ. This book had a profound impact on me. And as we sat that day, I quickly realized that in front of me was going to be one of my dearest friends. And it's proven true in such a short amount of time. And last night we had a chance to have coffee together. And as I was contemplating the direction of the sermon, I realized at that moment, I wanted to bring all of you in to a coffee that I had had with my friend Brad. And I wanted you to hear our conversation. Brad was one of the co-authors of The Shack. Uh, it was, uh, the title is given to the author by the name of Paul Young, but Brad and his partner, Wayne Jacobson, uh, took the manuscript from Paul Young, which was theologically a mess. And uh, Brad, being a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and a pastor from the vineyard in Malibu, uh, grounded solidly in the scriptures, made it so that it was orthodox and correct and can defend it in such a profound way that the insights that he brings were, were profound and touching to me. And... Then all of a sudden, he sent me a link to the movie, The Shack, which comes out in March. And he happens to be the producer. It's being brought out by Lionsgate Entertainment. The trailer 
came out uh, a little more than a week ago, and there's already been over 30 million hits on the trailer. This is exponential, unlike any other Christian movie imaginable. Sam Worthington, who plays the lieutenant in Hacksaw Ridge, a phenomenal actor, is the lead actor in this. And um, when this movie comes out, I have to tell you, and, and, and you're going to hear in a moment from Brad, this is a mountain of influence, two of the seven mountains of influence, the media and arts and entertainment. He had to stand in the center of what would be considered to Christians, Sodom and Gomorrah. And the two of us, as we've entered into these mountains of influence, one of the things I hear commonly from pastors, and it sickens me, is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? How can you enter into that world? It's soiled. Nowhere in the context of 2 Corinthians does Paul say avoid the world. You're in the world, not of the world. He goes on to put into context that we're not to wrong anyone and we're not to corrupt anyone and we're not to cheat anyone. And in context of the Beatitudes themselves spoken by Christ himself, Jesus went on to say, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Who's writing this? Matthew, a tax collector. Matthew, a wayward Pharisee. Matthew, a priest. Matthew, who was just disgusted by the church and had abandoned it and embraced Rome, who now sees in the words of Christ a revolution to transform the world, who is touched to see how the people I love that embrace me in a cold and pietistic church can now come to have a relationship with the living God. And Matthew, these words rang so true that even at the end of the discourse of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone marveled at the words of Christ. No one had ever spoken such liberty and freedom that the world had ever heard. And this is revolutionary. This is what sent the pilgrims to our nation to give you what you have. This is what allowed us to have the Bible in our hands as people were burned at the stake to give you these words of life. This is what causes the human heart to experience freedom and deliverance. But how will they know unless someone tells them? And I met a man who stepped into the middle of darkness and said, here my Lord, use me. And I want you to meet him. His name is Brad Cummings. Brad, come on up. Let's welcome Brad Cummings. Now we have no idea what we're doing. Seriously. But I will say this. Brad shared a story with me that I was touched by, and I want to ask you to recount it in a second. When you step into Hollywood, it's inundated with atheism, agnosticism, everything under the, uh, the, the alphabet. The Jewish Sanhedrin. The Jewish Sanhedrin. The alphabet soup of, of uh, everything, I guess. And I want him to share with you a story that he told me where he, he was at Lionsgate Entertainment, one of the largest movie production companies in the world. And here he has a manuscript for a Christian novel that has sold over 10 million copies, now to be made into a movie. And the head of Lionsgate Entertainment and all of these 
as he describes Sanhedrin surrounding the table, begin to systematically remove the Christian significance of this novel to turn it into an Exodus movie that you all went to go see or Noah and you just all looked at it and thought, where's Jesus in this? I mean, Noah, really? Stones that are alien? It was crazy. And it was a flop. And he had to contend in this arena for the truth. Tell them that story. So they had gathered all of the the, the mucky mucks uh, and even the, the big financiers from France that own everything flew in for this meeting. So it's, it's the who's who of everybody from the studio, um, the other producer that I'm with, and then me. And uh, they have a director who you would all know and is, is very accomplished and everyone sort of genuflects towards, and he's possibly going to be the director for our film. And it's sort of this is the pitch meeting to kind of solidify all that. And he has this idea that, you know what, the Trinity – is just a little bit limiting if we want to take this to a general market audience because that kind of squarely puts it in the Bible. And, you know, after all, aren't we trying to reach beyond just the sphere of where we're at? And so he starts going into this wonderful little message about how, you know, for this story, how about we just not deal with the Trinity? I'm like, you just axed like 75% of the main characters. And I'm listening to this and, you know, an awful little pit in your stomach. And I'm going like, oh, no one gave me this memo. <laughs> and all the other heads are sort of nodding like, oh, well, that's something worth considering. And I'm sitting there going like, what in the world do I do? And so after he sort of gave his little kind of pitch and everyone's sort of thinking that this is you know, a good idea, I just sort of raised my hand. I said, I said you know what? Um, I'm a little concerned with that. I said, but do you know why we use the Trinity? And he's, he, he, he looks at me and, and, I, and it's like, no, Brad, why don't you tell us? And I'm going, well, I didn't ask it that way. <laughs> but he's like very upset. And I kind of said, well, of the pantheon of gods available out there, there still is only one whose story is climbing into the mess, the nightmare of our humanity, sacrificing himself so as to give healing as the gift. And that guy's Jesus. And then I realized where I was, which was the Sanhedrin, my other producing partner is looking at me like, shouldn't we have talked about this? And I'm going like, well, yeah, we should have, you know. <laughs> and it, it, it was that uncomfortable silence for a second. I don't know how long it lasted. For me, it was an eternity where I'm going like, Jesus, 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 help, help, help. And finally, the head of production kind of steps in and says, you know, I'm Jewish, but none of the Jesus stuff in this story has ever really bothered me. I've been captured by this. So I'd be a little bit hesitant for us to kind of deviate from, you know, the book's version of this. And then the really moneyed guy stepped in and says, you know, I don't know. It's like I haven't read the book, but I've read the screenplay, and I never dreamed. But I've had two dreams that just haunt me. This is so capturing my attention. I don't think we should really change it. And he shot me a look like, I shouldn't say it the way I was going to say it. Um, I would. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was rather impressed that I, as a very junior first-time producer, would actually speak up in the meeting and go as directly forward. So I think for that reason alone, he's like, nice pair, kid, you know. <laughs> I did say it. You gave me permission. 
<laughs> I didn't know you meant that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I was thinking chutzpah. Yeah, chutzpah. That's that's it. Chutzpah. Wonder what chutzpah means. <laughs> but it was it was one of those moments where you're going like, I'm pretty sure this discussion has never happened in this little inner sanctum of Hollywood. And over the course of, you know, four years of development, that was my giving a PhD um, education to a bunch of non-believers about Trinitarian theology and all the other stuff in a way that would make the telling of the story entertaining and inviting relationally. And it was just, it, it's been phenomenal to go like, God, you're not normally talked about here. But you're touching these people's lives in an extraordinary way. And I could have tried to do this independently and would have had far more control because many times this thing has been ripped out of my hands. And you're going like, it's going to be a train wreck. Only to discover that by the grace of God, they're holding on to it. It's about like grabbing kryptonite for them. It's like it's absolutely affecting them in ways that if I had protected it so much, I doubt it would. Could you give us a synopsis of the book for those who haven't read it real quick, and then we'll show the trailer? Yeah, it's, there's, there, there's a family. They go on a, a little camping trip, and in the midst of this wonderful camping trip, the youngest daughter is abducted, and she goes missing. And you fear the worst. They, they, they find her bloody dress. They never find her. And the dad goes into a horrible depression for three years. And then one morning gets a, a note in the mailbox. Invite, and it's, you know, it's inviting him back to the very place of his worst pain. And it's signed Papa, which is his wife's favorite name for God. And he's left to wonder, what is this? Is this some sick joke? Is this the killer? Is, could this possibly be God? And against all of his fears and anxieties, he doesn't know how else to resolve this other than he goes up there. And then he has what is a rather amazing encounter with the God that just sort of defies all of our stereotypes, but heals this man's soul as he brings him back to a place of recognizing, in spite of all the stuff that goes on, we're never as alone as we think. And that, you know, we sort of ask this main question in the story, what if there is a God who just absolutely loves you? You don't have to believe it. Just, just try it on for a second. What if? And the way you describe the Trinity is so st strange to our Christian mindset. <laughs> God the Father is a black woman. Yes. Um, uh, Jesus is a kind of cool-looking young guy. Yeah, he's, 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 he's the real deal. T-shirt wearing young guy. The Holy Spirit. Um, a little Asian, beautiful Asian lady. Beautiful Asian lady. Um, Not what you'd expect. And that's the idea, is to catch people off guard. Let's watch the trailer. Are we ready to show it? And then we'll have some more time together. We're going we're gonna to share two stories uh, that, that tie in with kind of the text that the Lord put on our heart, especially as we had coffee the other day. But before I do that, I, I want you to know something, that in these seven mountains of influence that I shared earlier, and, and Wall Now is strangely connected with our fellowship through David Lane, and is touched by what's going on in our little church and how we've affected so much by our commitment to the Lord and wanting to step into culture. But there are countless people in this congregation that have been doing this for a long, long time, far before I ever stepped foot into the political arena. And I, I was thinking about 
Sam and Kevin Sorbo up in the front. I didn't want to go any further. You know, you saw the movie God is Not Dead? And, and Sam every day is contending on the radio for, for Christian culture and for Christ in the center of culture and the media. Kevin, in the same regard, doing these movies. And I, I just wanted to take a minute to recognize you guys. Would you stand up and let everybody see you? Sam, Kevin, bless you. And, and I, I just marvel because the way we got connected is through the, the McEwens and just watching as this world is starting to gravitate. I, I really believe with all my heart in the coming years, there's going to be a massive revival in our nation. I believe there'll be an awakening. I, and I was so stirred, 30 million people have already viewed in, in less, a little over a week, have, have viewed this, this trailer that you just saw. And, and this is going to inspire us to step into, these, into this culture and make a difference. But if you're going to be pietistic and stand back in your moral moralism and, and take 2 Corinthians 6 out of context to not be unequally yoked and not soil yourself with the world, you've gotten the scriptures all wrong. And yes, to contend, you're going to face persecution. You're going to be reviled. You're going to be cheated and lied to. One of the things I shared with you a ways back, especially in the assembly campaign, being up in, in, the, in the, the caucus, the Republican caucus in Sacramento, I was, I was so betrayed I'd never experienced anything like that in all my life. It was one of the most shocking things I'd ever met, encountered, and it was done by a pastor who was an assemblyman who lied to my face and set me up in, in one of the most ob, obscene ways I've ever experienced. I remember sitting in that room realizing that I was used as a pawn to, to take any assembly member that was willing to support me and push them to the back of the bus and penalize them by the, the, the ruling uh, um, assembly member of the caucus. And this pastor did it to gain favor with authority. I confronted him and I laid it out. And I didn't waver and he repented. And he asked for forgiveness and our heart was knitted. And he shared this pulpit. He's been here. We were reconciled. He's a good man in a bad place. And we all struggle. But we don't waver. We haven't, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've cheated no one. We hold to the Beatitudes. We stand for truth. But in this, there will come, as I shared with you, there will be persecution for righteousness' sake. You don't waver. You don't change. Unequally yoked. We're not marrying these folks but we're walking with them. And when they want to compromise us, we don't compromise. We stand in the midst of where they are and we love them. As Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Billy Martin and I ran against each other in the council. We're we're dear brothers and friends. This is okay to disagree or to contend. But you're going to face persecution. And I shared that story with you, but I want you to close our time together. That story you told me, uh, just take it. Well, this whole journey has not been an easy one. Um, I, think, I think the enemy is a little bit frightened of it, and I think we make sort of easy roadkill when we sort of follow how we're supposed to live in the Bible. The other team's not really playing by the rules and so when you're trying to do good stuff and 
do what's right, and the other team's kind of like, I'm just going to do whatever. Um, I have found myself in the course of making this movie being pushed out of it several times over. And you're just going like, how's that happening? I mean, I got, I got one of the best contracts you could ever have because of the strength of the property that we brought to it. But ink on paper is not as valuable as truth in hearts. And when someone's not... Kevin's laughing. <laughs> the stories I bet you could tell. <laughs> and so in the midst of all of this, at one point, they actually started um, pre-production without me. That's not fun, you know? And I, this was by someone who had said, you know, I want to look after you, make sure you don't get eaten by the sharks. And you're going like, oh, thank you, I just was lunch. And... Um, I'm trying to find my way back into this, and the Lord is just, he's not as bothered as I am about this. We had many conversations. I'm anxious, he's not. And in the course of this, I'm going like, well, what am I supposed to do? And he's just telling me to relax. I'm going like, easy for you? You know, if I don't do anything, it will stay as is. And I'm feeling like it's my job to sort of steward this thing and kind of keep it on track. And if all of a sudden it becomes another Noah or Exodus, it's like, what an absolute tragedy. And I'm going like, I got to be in there. So I wrote one of the guys a note. I said, hey, you know, like in keeping with the book, it's been a while. Um, was thinking we might get together at the shack. Uh, where is it happening? <laughs> Which the studio had thought was kind of cute. Um, I found my way back into it, and in the midst of all this, they were having a rough go. With Tell, tell them about the dream. I, I will. All right. I'll shut up. I will. They're having a rough go for the first couple of weeks, and production was not happening. It, it, it's like things were like 13, 14 takes, and you're going like, it's, it's, and they hadn't yet cast the Holy Spirit. And so they started production, but they hadn't cast the Holy Spirit yet. I'm going, that's ironic to me. <laughs> We finally got the Holy Spirit to show up and started going great. Um, but in all of this, when, when, you, when you see something going wrong, and it's like now's the time to fix it because I don't know what we're going to be able to do in post or not. If we don't capture what we need now, we won't have what we need to do our magic later. And so I'm having one of these like drag him out discussions with God in the midst of this, and I'm going like, you promised. This has been a 20-year journey for me. Nothing happens overnight. And I'm absolutely just kind of livid with what's happened. It, it, it's unjust. It's unfair. And I'm asking God to do something. It's like, aren't I your kid? Didn't you promise? And I just sort of laid out my whole litany of stuff, and I'm asking him to do something. Come on, God. Be my dad. And I'm asking, you know, like, I want you to judge him. Do something. I wasn't saying, like, burn him up or drop napalm, but, well, I mean, I didn't think I was, but I was mad. So in the midst of all of this, the Lord just says, hey, Brad, I'd like, you're right. I'd like you not to ask that of me right now. And I wasn't prepared for that. One, I was glad I was right. But I, I realized I'm not making, I would never say that to me. So that this is not me making this up. And God's saying, you know what? That's sort of a spilt milk 
dynamic right now. We can't hit reset. There's no way to undo what's been going on. But right now, he then turned the whole story on me and said, you're looking through the knot hole of your pain. And you can't see. I just might want to be do. I, I want to do something different for you. He was wanting to display mercy. At a time, I was like, you know, just holding the line for uncompromising truth. But I was defending something that the Lord was like, you know what, That's, we're past that point. We, there's nothing to do there right now. Let's work with what is. And he says, I want you to love your enemies. And I'm going like, well, I would if I could. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm in, but let's be honest, I got zero in the tank. It's just enough for me to not curse at these guys. And the Lord just says, I just want you to love them. Well, over the course of the next six weeks, I found my way back into the hearts of what had begun as friends, ended up in betrayal and enemies, and has now been brought back in friends. But in the midst of what was going on, there was one point where they were wanting me to, you know, kind of just not be there for a couple days. And I'm going like, that's not cool. I'm like one of the producers. Hello? And something's going on. No one's telling you what's going on. And I just I kind of went, Lord, you know what's going on. I don't. But I don't like this, and I don't know how to work my way through this. And so I said, tell me. Went to bed. It's like 1 in the morning. Woke up at 3, had a dream that just unveiled every last little detail of what was going on. I rolled out of bed, sent an email to the head of the studio. I said, look, I just woke up. I had this dream. It could be the undigested burger I ate at 1 in the morning. It could be God. This is what I think it is. I think you guys are standing in the way of seeing something reconciled that would only help the production in the movie and the legitimacy of the story we're telling. And I'd love for you to not stand in the way of that. So if I'm right, can we please talk? And then sent it off, went back to bed. And that's kind of like a make it or break it moment because if I'm like totally wrong, it sort of shoots all of my credibility that, well, he is crazy. <laughs> in the morning, I got a little text at 7 in the morning, can you meet me down in the lobby? <laughs> and it was one of the studio execs. And they're looking at me like, how could you know this? And I'm going like, well, there's a God in heaven who cares far more about this than I do. And I don't think he really wants us to be kind of pulling fast ones on each other. And they were agreeable to help allow a pathway of reconciliation to take place. And they were really longing for that. And long short of it is with one of the key principles that, that God's been working on, we have been so knitted. I've been so destroyed by a sense of betrayal. And God has somehow so re-knitted our hearts back that the guy asked me if I'd like to make another movie with him called The Proof of Heaven. He's not a believer. But he's going like, he's interested. And I'm going like, that's the irony of God. Amen. Good word.
Before our time's up, I want to spend some time worshiping this amazing God that we've been speaking about. And, uh, you know, we're coming up to Christmas. And the part that touched me was when uh, Brad shared about speaking to the executives and saying in the pantheon of gods, there was only one that put on flesh and dwelt with man. That's the God we serve. That's the God of hope of all humanity. He's waiting for us to step into the middle of it, no matter what the cost, and make a difference. I recognize Sam and Kevin. I I can think of Lou Lichtel, principal of T.O. High School in the thick of of Mountain of Influence and Education. Um, Keith, where are you? Keith, stand up. He's he's in the teacher's union, standing in the middle of of an area of influence. Amen. Lou. I watch all of you with this boldness and this commitment to the Lord. Jesus came to dwell with us in the darkest areas of the world. You have nothing to be afraid of. We've both faced the persecution. And that persecution draws these folks to realize that no matter what they do or say to us, they ultimately come to love us. And a missionary goes where he's not loved but greatly needed and leaves when he's no longer needed but deeply loved. Now do it. It's Christmas time. Give the world the gift of Jesus. Dwell with them. Make a difference, no matter what the cost. Amen?